Welcome to Buddhist Solutions for Life's Problems. On this show, we examine how people apply their Nichiren Buddhist practice to the complex challenges of being human. I'm Jihi Jolly, a journalist and practitioner of SGI Nichiren Buddhism, and today we're talking about finding your dream career. Before we start, if you're a new listener, you can learn more about the podcast on episode one. If you like what you hear, we would really appreciate if you could rate and review the show on whatever podcast app you're using to listen. So today's problem is figuring out what to do with your life and then making it happen against all odds. Oh, this? It's a dictionary. That's D-I-C-T-I-O, you can look up the rest, in a dictionary. That's Ike Ufamaru, a New York City-based comedian who has navigated just this conundrum in a unique, powerful way using his Buddhist practice. It's filled with, in the words of Hamlet, words, words, words. Hi, I'm Ike, and I invite you to join me on a journey through words. There'll be big words, some small words, and some right there in the middle. There'll be good words, bad words, and words of smaller size still. But through it all, you can trust me to be there with you, step by step, letter by letter, syllable by syllable. So come, let's take a dance with old lady English at the language ball. I've got two tickets, and there's one just for you, to words with Ike. We're going to hear his story today, which is about how to gain the courage to go for your dreams, and another from a woman named Tanya about what's possible when you do so. I'll give you the thesis up front on this one, and we'll unpack it as we go. Fighting for your dreams is hard, possibly harder than ever, thanks to the endless amount of information we are exposed to online and the endless forms of self-doubt that plague us since we can now compare ourselves to more people than ever before. There are three specific ideas that I've learned from my Buddhist practice that I think constitute the winning formula for developing a career you love. Individually, while they may simply sound like good career advice, In order to implement them, we have to engage in an inner transformation to develop our resolve and confidence, which is what Buddhist practice is for. First, it's important to view yourself as a protagonist in your own life and develop a clear vision of your dream. In an essay passage titled The Positive Life View Found Within a Single Moment of Life, my Buddhist mentor Daisaku Ikeda writes, Buddhism teaches us that the individual writes and performs the script for his or her own life. Neither chance nor a divine being writes the script for us. We write it and we are the actors who play it. To perform your play well, it's important to pound the script into your head so thoroughly that you can see it vividly before your eyes. To quote Shakespeare, all the world's a stage and all the men and women merely players. Second, It's crucial to do your best exactly where you are, even if where you are isn't exactly where you want to be. Whatever experience you gain right here and right now will become invaluable toward fulfilling your dream. And third, 
It's vital to make unceasing efforts, to put in a lot of hard work until you do reach your goal, knowing that along the way there will be twists and turns and many decisions to make, all of which can be navigated based on the wisdom we inherently possess that we can unlock through chanting and taking action. When I was little and people asked me what I wanted to be when I grew up, I was positive I would be a writer because I really, really loved to read. But as I got older and discovered the little devil on my shoulder known as insecurity, that clarity about my future got buried under several pounds of assumptions I made about other people's expectations of me. Over the years, I came to view life as a careful calculation of inputs and outputs because that's what I thought being an adult was all about. I prioritize things like going to a top graduate school and being financially independent, not for my own fulfillment, but because I wanted to prove to the people around me I was doing something important. Instead, I eventually caved under the pressure I put on myself, kept getting distracted by creative pursuits, which I loved but ascribed no value to, and soon found myself on what looked like a meandering path leading nowhere special. Until, of course, I decided to look inward for fulfillment. What I discovered inside was a frightened girl who knew she was born to be a writer, but had spent a lot of time sidelining that dream in favor of doing what she felt she should. The moment I found her, I started encouraging her to come out and be free, and guided her toward actions that would support what was in her heart. This journey to both be true to myself and successful according to my own standards is what really drove me to develop a consistent Buddhist practice. It resulted in a far deeper confidence than I could have ever imagined, with a life in New York City that I love, filled with the ups and downs of creative projects I've been privileged to work on. I share this story because I know we've all got our own version of it. We often start out as curious dreamers and then lose ourselves along the way, knocked down by stacks of limitations, some institutional, endemic to a self-serving society with poorly distributed power and resources, and some self-imposed because life is riddled with challenges and being resilient takes courage and practice. Our first story begins with a young boy named Ike Ufomaru, who grew up in the 90s in Plano, Texas, about 20 miles north of Dallas. He was a quiet kid who found his must on TV, curious and enamored by the odd performers he would watch on reruns of Christmas TV specials from the 70s and the Andy Williams show. I'm basically in sixth grade, you had like the first opportunity to be in like honors classes and for whatever reason I was like okay I'm gonna be in all of them and um, there was one class that I uh, hadn't gotten into yet and it was honors speech and theater and in order to get into that class you had to compete in these uh, like speech tournaments which were basically like these little mini acting competitions and so, yeah, I made this pantomime of a guy running late for work and set it to the Ghostbusters theme. And um, yeah, I ended up doing pretty well at the tournament. And then, but also, um, yeah, it was also funny, or like it made people laugh. And 
I think that was kind of intoxicating. Like, oh, I want to do that again. And yeah, it was like a way to be in quiet too, like one-on-one. -on -one. Yeah, for whatever reason, it felt, um, I felt better able to express myself in front of an audience. In seventh grade, Ike decided he wanted to be an actor, and after high school, moved to New York City to study acting at NYU. In New York, he encountered Buddhism for the first time. When he graduated, he stayed in New York but felt increasingly lost about how to move forward and pursue life as an artist in the city. I'd only done acting like in the context of school plays or competitions like from high school throughout college. So I don't know, somehow like the concept of even like, yeah, making a living that way was just like really suddenly felt so foreign and like I, I just didn't really know what to do or how to move forward. Over time, his work started getting recognized and he was able to support himself with side jobs, but it was a constant month-to-month -month challenge to make ends meet. And he often found himself succumbing to depression and anxiety, teetering on the edge of giving up entirely. Before we continue with his story, Let's hear for a second from someone who specializes in just this subject. Pat Schwadron is the career counselor supervisor at the Actors Fund, an organization in New York City that supports people in the entertainment industry to navigate their career. I stopped by her office on a Monday morning to ask a few questions about why people struggle so much in this process. The idea is that uh, when you decide what you love and what you want to do, you're at a certain age and stage of your life and development, and then life happens and efforts to reach that can be successful or not. And so the learning process is trial and error. And change is not really what we're set up for. Naturally, I mean, the, the way the brain works, you know, the, the, the brain stem, the lizard brain is saying fight, flight, freeze. It's not saying, oh, take a little risk on that and see what happens, right? That's the, the front, more developed prefrontal cortex, which through experience can learn to tolerate ambiguity, uncertainty, possibility of failure, uh, and also then process failure as a learning opportunity. So I think what I love about the Buddhist uh, philosophy is that it's all about that. You know, basically, how, what, what kind of support can you give yourself to take those risks, uh, to try something new, to see what happens, to learn from failure? And it's really the only way people grow. In the record of the orally transmitted teachings, 13th century monk Nichiren Daishonin says that each thing, the cherry, the plum, the peach, the damson, in its own entity, without undergoing any change, possesses the eternally endowed three bodies. I've read this passage explained by Ikeda to mean that basically, each human being is unique, just as a cherry blossom is a cherry blossom and a peach blossom is a peach blossom. Therefore, each human being has to bloom in their own individual way, and doing so is our mission. In society, that's often expressed by the career path we choose. But choosing what to do with your life is hard. And once you do decide on your dream, if you have the guts to do so, persevering through all of life's obstacles to achieve it can feel like an endless roller coaster of battles. 
The biggest setback came in 2014, when a big opportunity for a show in Vegas came up. He decided to give up his day job to have ample time to train his replacement, but as soon as he did so, the Vegas job fell through. After a month of being unable to leave his house due to anxiety, he decided to get back out there and continued to make efforts developing his own work. In 2015, he was given the opportunity to do a series of shows at the Public Theater and Joe's Pub, legendary venues he had dreamed of performing at while in school. But the stress of making ends meet continued for the next three years. Maybe on the surface things looked okay, but actually they were not that good. Yeah, in terms of like feeling a sense of stability or like particularly financially. Which of course then affects, like, or can affect so many other aspects of one's life and well-being. Ike has a point here, but I'm reminded of one of my favorite passages from Nietzsche's writings for moments like this, which is about being diligent in practice and effort to avoid having any regrets. It reads, "The journey from Kamakura to Kyoto takes 12 days. If you travel for 11, but stop with only one day remaining." How can you admire the moon over the capital? Basically, in moments where it's easy to give up on a goal because it's too difficult or the end seems nowhere in sight, practicing Buddhism helps us to continue making efforts until the very end. The ability to persevere is essential for achieving our dreams. Yeah, especially when things were tough. I just had to chant in the morning. I just had, to, I just had to. I just knew I would not get anything done otherwise,、uh, because I was in such a deep funk. And after chanting, I just felt, even if my situation hadn't changed, I just felt like, okay, I can, like I just had immense hope. And then over the course of the day, I feel like I would be just completely knocked down. But I could always then. Just chant again and get back up. So Ike chanted about this and slowly started seeing things move in his environment. First, an opportunity came up to work on an off-Broadway show. Then he made it to the next round of a writing program he was in, and then, to his surprise, he was featured in a Time Out magazine article called "Five Comedians to Watch in New York in 2018." His next step was to solve the financial crunch that he was in, as bills were looming and he still didn't have a job. Then one day, while interviewing for a personal assistant job with a psychologist, he was asked how long he planned to work. And I said, "Oh, maybe like a year or two." And he said, "Ah, well, you know, I, my last person was with me for ten years,、uh, so I'm kind of looking for someone long term."、Um, But I guess that's dependent on like if you find a way to make a living in your field, right? So you could potentially be here for that long. And I said, Yeah, well, yeah, that's that's true. <laughs> that's so.、Um, so he's like,、oh, Okay, okay. Well, I guess that's a risk I might be willing to take. Yeah, that night I just remember being like one of the darkest nights because yeah, this question about like the ten years and. Are you willing to do this for ten years? Just made me think, like, wait, do I actually believe that I can make it as an artist? I never allowed myself to just chant about, okay, I want to somehow make it as an artist. Anyway, I'd never just sat down and said, hey, this is what I want to do. So I decided, okay, the next morning I was going to 
enchant about the fact that I wanted to be an artist, period. The next morning, after chanting this way, he got an email from a former boss who he had worked very hard for, who asked how Ike was doing with the job search and offered a loan to cover the bills while he was in between paychecks. His career also started to shift. In 2018, a series of shorts was put on TV by IFC. That fall, he got his first TV writing job, and the off-Broadway show took off. When that whole thing happened with, yeah, my boss lending me money, I just felt like, wow, I, every single day up to that point, I literally could have stopped. There was every reason to somehow give up like every single step along the way. <laughs> so, um, yeah, perseverance is really important. You really never know when you're about to like turn a corner for the better. Oh, hi, and welcome back to Words with Ike. On this installment, we take a look at the word fountainhead. Fountainhead is comprised of two vastly different words, fountain and head. Put together, they refer to the original source of something. Let's try a little role play to see the word fountainhead in action. Person A, hey, my socks are wet. What's the fountainhead of all this water? Person B, the fountainhead of that water is over there in that fountain. Person A, thank you. Let us go to the park official and see if we can turn off this fountainhead. Person B, it's easy to use the word fountainhead in your day-to-day -day life. And you'll find that when you do, you'll be the fountainhead of fun. When you watch Ike's shows, what's striking is that he carries the same confidence he once admired in the odd performers who inspired him as a child, and yet he is entirely his own performer. In the words of Time Out writer Helen Shaw reviewing his show, Ike at Night, this variety show is supposed to be a satire of late night, but is actually the best case scenario for what late night could be. Well-chosen guests vary night to night, and Ufamaru's droll, crooning murmur, delivered with a confidence as big as all outdoors, makes the show pass in a haze of constantly burbling laughter. I can't help but think how this resonates with Ikeda's explanation of the cherry, peach, and plum blossoms. He writes, Without a doubt, you possess your own jewel, your own innate talent inside of you. The question is, how can you discover that talent? The only way is to exert yourself to the very limits of your ability. Before we hear our next story, which is a powerful one, here's a little context on what Buddhism says about finding your dream job. Daisaku Ikeda writes, Effort and hard work construct the bridge that connects your dreams to reality. Let's think about it this way. Because Buddhism is based on the law of cause and effect, one should always set a clear, concrete goal and then put their best effort into making causes to achieve it. Sounds easy, right? Unfortunately, human beings are complicated. While we have all of this positivity and creative potential inside of us, we also have our negativities, and sometimes they get in the way of being able to set clear goals and persevering through challenges to achieve them. To power through these very hurdles, 
Buddhists chant Nam-myoho-renge-kyo to invigorate the positive aspects of their life, confidence, wisdom, creativity, courage. And based on an elevated life state, we take action. In one of my very favorite essays on the subject, called The Crossroads of Should and Must, writer and artist El Luna shares her journey of moving away from a career she felt she should have to a life she felt she must. It's not about Buddhism per se, but it really resonates. In the words of Luna, must is who we are, what we believe, and what we do when we are alone with our truest, most authentic self. It's our instincts, our cravings and longings, the things and places and ideas we burn for, the intuition that swells up from somewhere deep inside of us. Must is why Van Gogh painted his entire life without ever receiving public recognition. Must is why Mozart performed Don Giovanni and Coltrane played his new sound, even as critics called it ugly. Similar to Ikeda's example of writing a script so clearly that it's etched in your mind, Luna and many product designers use a well-known practice from a famous tech company to write a future press release before you've created a product. A press release for the product that you want to exist in the world. We envision the headlines, she writes. We dreamed of what would happen if all of our wildest dreams came true. We even taped it inside of a magazine and put it on the coffee table. Most of us do this kind of big, scary dreaming with our products or our companies, but very few of us do it with our lives. I mean, from the time I was, I don't know, eight, I think I knew I wanted to be a lawyer or to do something to fight injustice. I had discovered Harriet Tubman in fourth grade and kind of decided I wanted to be some version of her. Um, you know, but a lot happens between eight and, um, and 26 when I entered law school. That's Tanya Henderson. I met up with her when she was visiting New York City for her son's graduation from college because I read her story and was so blown away by it that I had to understand how she's accomplished what she has. Like me, she grew up Buddhist. She's now 48, a lawyer and the founder of an international nonprofit called Mina's List, which works to get women elected in countries where they are most marginalized, like Afghanistan. But let's start at the beginning. So I, I have suffered with clinical depression my entire life. Um, when I was 16, my, the guidance counselor and school principal told my parents I wasn't allowed back to school until I got um, help because they were afraid I was going to take my own life. Um, and my junior year, I had to see um, a psychiatrist every single day after school for an entire year. Um, so my battle um, is with... Um, was is with feeling profound despair and disappointment and heartbreak over the world and life. In her 20s, Tanya got married and had two babies, but the marriage ended badly, and she found herself a single mom supporting two little boys alone. Somehow, she decided this would be the right time to apply to law school. Her must. And so um, when I was chanting now as a single mother, you know, whatever, five years later, um, to be the kind of mom that could really enable my kids, my two sons, to really fulfill their great dreams, um, <clears throat> I realized that I could never do, encourage them to do that if I didn't do it myself. 
And so I really just applied, um, decided to apply on a whim. Like, okay, well, I'll at least say to them that, you know, I tried um, because I literally just, um, I had only gotten off welfare a couple months before. I had just secured daycare. Um, you know, I was working full time, but again, I'm 26 with two babies under the age of, of three. So, um, so I applied for the sake of my children, um, but then I ended up getting accepted within 10 days of my application um, being received. And so then I was like, okay, now what? Like, now what do I do? I have no money. Um, I've got two kids. I'm working full time. Um, you know, but having, you know, as, as a practitioner of Nichiren Buddhism, I really, I knew that there was nothing in life that isn't a that's a coincidence. Prior to law school, Tanya had been working for Girl Scouts, and one of her biggest motivations for studying law was that time and again, she found herself unable to help the girls she was working with when they faced legal challenges on account of abuse or neglect. She wanted to have the power to help them. So I just decided that I would, um, that I would chant every day, you know, um, until the day classes started and really visualize that empty lecture seat in the, in the classroom. And then, you know, Buddhism is about cause and effect. So I also made every possible cause, um, you know, applied for every scholarship. I wrote letter to, letters to, um, actually to Senator Ted Kennedy because um, I was going to lose my subsidized daycare if I started law school or graduate school full time. And long story short, over the course of those next six to eight months, um, little by little, resources came in um, that enabled me. Um, and, and it was really to the last minute. I mean, even three weeks before classes started, I didn't think I was going to be able to afford to go. Um, but um, all the resources kind of came together between work studies, scholarships, jobs, um, subsidized daycare, <laughs> and, um, and was able to um, begin classes full time um, that fall. Little did she know what a daunting challenge the next three years would be. And this part, like, I never want to share with people because I feel like if, if I heard this story, I would be like, oh, that, I'm, I can't do that. Um, but, you know, again, you do it when you feel that sense of mission and, and purpose, you know. Um, so my day, I... Um, I would wake up at five. Um, I would do my best to um, to chant and do gonyo until six. So I try and get a good hour of my Buddhist practice under my belt each morning. Then I'd get my kids up. Um, we were out the door every day by quarter of seven, so that I could have them at daycare at seven thirty. Um, I worked in the law library at the law school from eight until noon um, every morning, which actually was a huge benefit. That was part of one of those resources that came together because. Um, um, that not many other students get up at eight to be in the library. <laughs> so I would have like the first two to three hours every morning of just silent library study time. And I had all the resources available to me at my fingertips. So I would go in having read footnotes and all of these, you know, external resources um, from our law casebooks that um, because I had the law books all at my fingertips, right? But so. Um, but so I would work from 8 until noon, and then classes were from noon until 4. And then at 4, I would go and pick up my kids at daycare. And we'd be on the road at 4.30 for an hour commute home. We would do dinner, books, bath, bed. Um, and then they would fall asleep somewhere around 9-ish. Um, and then my, my partner, who's currently my husband now, um, would call me every night um, until I woke up, because I'd usually fall asleep putting them to bed. And, um, and he would call and call and call until I woke up uh, around 10-ish. And then I would study until 2 or 3 in the morning, um, and then be up at 5 again. Perhaps this sounds like a superhuman lifestyle. 
But by then, Tanya had been practicing Buddhism a long time and trusted that if she wholeheartedly applied it to her daily life, she would be able to tap into her inner reserves of courage, strength, and wisdom. At the end of her second year, however, her schedule began to take a toll on her, and she reached a dead end. The university had a strict B- curve, which meant that if you got three or more grades below B-, you would automatically be kicked out. She had already gotten two Cs, and with one child now in half-day kindergarten, she had less time to study and more seminars than any other semester. And I thought, this is it. I just can't do it. And by now, I've been doing this for two years. I'm so exhausted. I'm so sleep-deprived. I can either go down um, because I give up, I can either fail because I give up, um, or I could fail fighting. So um, I just decided, I was like, okay, I'll just, I know I'm going to fail. I know I'm going to flunk out. I'd rather flunk out in flames. To her surprise, that was the first semester Tanya ended up making the dean's list. Not only that, but she also applied to and was accepted for a scholarship from the Massachusetts Association of Women Lawyers. I remember hearing that I had received it, and it was like a $1,000 gift, which was lovely and nice, and there was a reception, and um, so, I remember my mom asking me if you know she she should come and other people. And I said no no no, it's not going to be that big of a deal. It's a thousand dollar gift, but you know I want to go and show my appreciation. I walked into that event. Um, it was put on by the Massachusetts Association of Women Lawyers, and it was this huge hotel. And um, and like I, I didn't even really um, I didn't even really feel like totally appropriately dressed that day. You know, so like I grabbed a suit jacket, um, actually at a store on my way to the event, and um, and walked in and and. Um, and they start circulating me around this hotel lobby room, introducing me to the first woman judge um, that had ever been nominated a judge. And the first, you know, woman lawyer. And there's these old, you know, extraordinary, beautiful, elegant women in wheelchairs, you know, that have been in the legal career for the you know, previous, whatever, 60, 70 years. And, um, and I start, you know, I turn to the woman, the host, and um, she was the president. I said, you know, it's, it's okay, I can mingle. You can go do what you need to do. And she said, what are you talking about? You're the reason we're all here. And, um, and so when she was giving the you know, scholarship award speech about me to this massive hotel lobby room, all filled with women lawyers, um, you know, all ages, um, and she's talking about me, she says, you know, um, the reason that we chose Tanya wasn't just what she's done but it's how she's done it. And, um, and when she said that to me, I knew that she was honoring what my Buddhist practice has, has given me. So Tanya continued to fight through her final year of school. And in 2001, she graduated from law school with her family in the audience. By the time I graduated, my kids were five and six, um, and they had been through it with me to the very moment. I mean, one of my, I think it was my last exam for law school, it was um, a wills and trust exam, and it was a 24-hour exam. Um, you get it, and then you've got 24 hours to turn it in. And in those 24 hours, both my kids came down with stomach flus um, and were vomiting all night long. And so I literally had them in sleeping bags at my feet under the dining room table where my computer was set up, and I'd be working on my exam until one of them had to throw up, and then I would take them to the bathroom, they would throw up, we'd take a bath, we'd put on clean pajamas, I'd put them back into bed, 
and then the next one. And so this 24 hours <laughs> was, was them, um, you know. So anyways, they went through it with me, um, and um, we went through it together. So, um, so at my law school graduation, of course, my grandmother was there, my parents, um, and, and my two boys, and they were very cute in their little suits. Um, and at one point, um, you know, my mom looks down, and my oldest son, Alex, who was six, um, was wiping his eyes, and he was crying. And, um, and my mom said, oh, honey, you know, are you okay? What's the matter? Thinking that maybe his little brother had hurt him or something. And he goes, I'm just so proud of my mama. To me, Tanya's experience through law school exemplifies both having a clear vision and doing your best exactly where you are until you make it happen. In Ikeda's words, a tree doesn't grow strong and tall within one or two days. In the same way, a successful person doesn't get to where they are in only one or two years. This applies to everything. After graduation, Tanya got married and began a job as a child welfare attorney. And eventually, she began her own legal practice to be able to support her family and work from home. But seven or eight years later, she found herself thinking again about whether she could be doing more. It was the first time in my life I really didn't know what next. Um, and it was, it was actually pretty scary. Right? Like to think, you know, okay, you know, like I've done all this, I've achieved this amazing stuff, but like now what? Um, and, um, and so, you know, again, I actually turned to my Buddhist practice and, and then I just decided I was just going to sit down and chant until my life woke up. Um, and so I sat down and after about an hour um, of chanting Nam Myoho Renge Kyo, like Africa popped up. And I was like, oh yeah, that's right. I always want to go to Africa. I was like, well, what am I going to do in Africa? And I, you know, it's like, you know, I keep chanting. And I was like, oh, you were going to do international human rights law. Don't you remember? And it was like my inner voice talking to me. And, um, but at this point now, my kids are in middle school. The thought of just like uprooting and, and how do I start my career all over again? Um, you know, just it seemed kind of nearly impossible. I was living in, you know, Palo Alto, California, kind of utopia, right? Like, well, you know, what am I going to do? Um, you know, but after I finished those two hours of chanting Nam Myoho Renge Kyo, I sat down at the computer and just did a search for like masters in international law. And two programs came up. And one was um, at, you know, a university that was 10 minutes it's from my house. So it was great because like, oh, okay, that's something that's manageable can do. It's a one-year program. Um, the other one was at the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts um, back in Massachusetts, um, which had been my dream school when I was in undergrad. Um, and I had always wanted to go there. After applying, Tanya found out that she didn't get into the Fletcher School. But instead of giving up, she decided to take action. And so after about a month, I wrote to the, the program director and said, I know this is my this is my dream. I know this is supposed to be where this is where I'm supposed to be. What do I need to do to get there? And they wrote back and told me that they had really debated over my application. Um, but just for the record of the 20 that I ended up going there with, one was um, one was a judge on the Rwandan criminal tribunals before he went to Fletcher. <laughs> Another one was a prosecutor for Yugoslavian criminal tribunals before he went to Fletcher. Another one was running for the president of Zambia after he graduated from Fletcher. Um, you know, another one was a legal advisor to the prime minister of Albania. Um, this was not um, a group of people that a child welfare attorney from Massachusetts normally <laughs> steps into <laughs> easily. Um, so I did everything. 
everything that they told me I needed to do in order to really prepare myself to enter that group of people. And I reapplied the following year. Um, and my children and I and my family moved back to Massachusetts and we began that new chapter. In 2010, after graduating, Tanya got a job as the U.S. Director of the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom, which helped draft UN Security Council Resolution 1325 on Women, Peace and Security, mandating an equal role for women in all conflict prevention, peacebuilding, conflict management, and humanitarian crises, where in the past, women were often victims of war, but not included in the peace process. And when the U.S. National Action Plan on 1325 was announced, Tanya led her organization to contribute to its development. Six years later, she helped it become law in the United States. And while I was at that organization um, working on the Women, Peace, and Security Act, I got, um, I was asked to, actually it was kind of the most extraordinary, wonderful job task you could be given. I was asked to build a coalition of women political leaders from countries that the U.S. was engaged in conflict with or peace, process, peace building with um, and U.S. women legislators. And it was shortly after the Arab Spring, um, it was 2012. So I was working with women um, political leaders um, from Tunisia, Egypt, Morocco, Afghanistan, Pakistan, um, and U.S. women legislators and bringing them together um, two to three times a year to dialogue on issues of everything from um, nuclear disarmament to drone attacks to water issues to refugee issues. And the women would come together for about 10 days, two to three times a year, um, and they would argue and dialogue and debate and then come up with collective agendas on each of these topic areas that they would then bring back to their own countries um, and say, we the women of X, Y, and Z countries. Um, and then once a year, I'd bring them all to, to, to DC, to Washington, DC, and we would lobby on the Hill collectively as a group. Through the course of meeting with these women, Tanya realized that in some of these countries, women were single-handedly holding together women's rights and peace. So she determined to take action to expand women's political leadership globally, and in 2014, founded an organization to do just that. Last year in Afghanistan, the organization she founded called Mina's List held a training with 77 Afghani women and trained 50 aspiring candidates for office. 36 won their primary campaigns and eight new Mina's List candidates won their parliamentary elections, half being under the age of 30. They represent 32 of the 34 provinces in the country. What's remarkable is that it's Tanya's own struggles that have allowed her to gain the trust of the women she now serves. What's most inspiring to me is what happens in between all the conference calls and fundraising and trips. So on one hand, I'm doing these ama this amazing work, and I know like I've got a call at you know whatever 9 a.m. Um, to with the, these top Afghan women that are under circumstances that we can never fathom, that I can't fathom, and I'm struggling to get out of bed. Right? How lame is that? Um, so what do I do? Um, I set my alarm for seven, and I determine that you know I will chant at least an hour of you know Nam Myoho Renge Kyo, so that by the time I talk to them, um, I my life condition is at a place that I can really um, fulfill my true purpose, which is as, as a peace leader, which is as a friend. 
when I was 16 and, you know, the first appointment with thy psychiatrist, and um, she, she saved my life. Um, her first question was, you know, so why do you want to kill yourself? She was this, um, this very thick German accent. Why do you want to kill yourself? And I said, I don't want to kill myself. And she goes, well, they say you want to kill yourself. Why do you want to kill yourself? And I said, no, I don't want to kill myself. I just don't want to participate in this world as it exists any longer. I don't want to perpetuate the suffering of this world. I don't want to contribute to this suffering that I see around me. And so the same um, sense of empathy, compassion, love for humanity that causes me to suffer to the extent that I don't want to face the world or get out of bed or even then at that time live is the same love, compassion, um, you know, determination, passion that fuels what I do in my work every day. When I asked Tanya what advice she would pass on about pursuing one's dream, she referenced this passage from a lecture by Ikeda on a letter Nichiren Daishonin wrote to the mother of Oto Gozen. He writes, What kind of future do I envision, we may ask ourselves. What kind of self am I trying to develop? What do I want to accomplish in my life? We should paint this vision of our lives as specifically as possible. This painting becomes the design for our future. The power of the heart enables us to actually execute a wonderful masterpiece in accordance with that design. When I started Mina's List, I remember thinking, oh, when I had that really stupid job doing A, B, and C, that was the exact skill set I needed to do what I'm to be able to make Mina's List successful now. Um, so to really trust that everything you're doing, you know, on your path, um, is going to create value towards fulfilling your dream if you don't give up on that dream. Next time, we'll be talking about Buddhist solutions to financial challenges, being Buddhist in corporate America and how to be a great Buddhist parent. Once again, if you like what you've heard, please leave us a rating or review. And as always, if you have questions, comments, or suggestions, you can email me at podcast at sgi-usa.org.